0: Hey there, everybody. This is your host, Michelle Ann Olson, and you are listening to Are You Afraid of the Bark? The podcast that goes bark in the night. Welcome, dear listeners, to this episode 17. Today I'm going to be bringing to you part two of a topic previously explored. In episode 6, I talked about supernatural sea creatures. We explored the phenomenon of the ghost whale in Japan. We talked about the Encandado, the river dolphin turned into a man, this legend from the Amazon in South America. When I initially researched that episode, I came across so many more fantastic mythological sea creatures, that I always intended to put a pin in the topic and come back to it. And that's what we're doing today. This is part two of Supernatural Sea Creatures. So today I'd like to present to you three more phenomenal, bizarre, and yeah, some of them spooky, supernatural sea creatures. Let's travel first to New Zealand to talk about the Taniwha. The Taniwha is a sea creature, a supernatural sea creature, from Maori mythology. Taniwha or Tanifa. Again, I apologize if it's not English or French. Chances are I'm butchering these names, these words in their native language. I do apologize. I don't mean any disrespect. Tanawa are beings that live in deep pools, in rivers, caves, or in the sea, and especially in places with dangerous, strong currents or deceptive waves. They are considered either protective guardians of people, or in other traditions are seen as dangerous, predatory beings. So, at sea, in the open water, a tanawa will appear as a whale or a large shark. And it's worth noting that the Maori name for the great white shark is very similar. It's mango tanawa. So, the creature itself in the open water is shark-like. Inland, they might still be of whale size, massive creatures, But they look more in depictions of inland Tanawa. They look more like a gecko or an iguana with a row of spines along their back. Some Tanawa have associations with certain Maori tribal groups, and each group might associate with a Tanawa of their own. When they're accorded the respect that they feel that they deserve, Tanawa act well towards their people. They might communicate with a tribe via a priest, a sort of medium. They will sometimes save people from drowning or warn of approaching enemies. Because they live in such dangerous, dark, and gloomy places, the people, tribes people associated with Atenawa, might leave offerings to placate the being before passing through their lair. These offerings are often a simple green twig with the appropriate incantation or the first sweet potato of harvest time. Now Tanawa are also vigilant in ensuring that people, humankind, respect the restrictions imposed by the Maori gods. Violations of the gods are punished. And Tanawa can be especially dangerous to people from opposing tribes to those tribes with which they are associated. When Hotu Puku, a Tanawa, was killed, his stomach was cut open to reveal a number of bodies of men, women, and children. They were whole and still undigested, as well as various body parts. The Tanawa had swallowed all the victims he had been carrying, and his stomach contained weapons of those who had opposed him before he was killed. Darts, shark's teeth, even clothing, an assortment of fur and feather cloaks of the highest quality. Another Tanawa, known as Nagararaharu, was a monster that ate several villagers and captured a young woman who he kept in a cave by the sea. He was eventually enticed to come to the local village for a feast, where he was ambushed and killed by villagers. In his story, in each version of his story, upon his death the monster's tail detaches itself and is thrown far away into a body of water, where it later becomes a geographical landmark. In another legend, the Tanawa of Kapara, three sisters went out to pick berries. One of the sisters was particularly beautiful. The Tanawa caused havoc on their walk back, and the sisters fled. The Tanawa caught the sisters one by one, but he was trying to capture the beautiful one. When he succeeded, he took her back to his cave. Years passed, and the woman bore the Tanawa six sons. Three were like their father, and three fully human like her. She educated all her sons, and in particular taught her human sons the art of war, helping them to fashion and use weapons. The human sons then killed all three Tanawa brothers, and eventually their father, and they were all able to go back to their human homes. So in addition to these legends, Tanawa have featured prominently in New Zealand contemporary news. So Tanawa spirits have been referenced in legal negotiations and court cases. In 2002, a Maori tribe successfully ensured that part of New Zealand's major highway, State Highway 1, was rerouted to protect the abode of their legendary protector, of this tribe's Tanawa. This Tanawa was said to have the appearance of a large white eel, and the tribe argued that it must not be removed to allow for construction of the highway through their tribe land, but rather only move of its own accord because to move the Tanawa without its permission would only bring trouble. Transit New Zealand did negotiate a deal with that tribe, under which, quote, concessions have been put in place to ensure that the Tanawa are respected, end quote. So this has occurred more than once in recent New Zealand history, where the purported lair of a Tanawa is set to be disturbed by some plan for modernization for further infrastructure and tribes people Maori tribes people have come forward to protect the traditional lair or place of habitation of their tribes Tanawa and have been successful in court in having these developments routed elsewhere there is a Maori academic who said that in the modern age in New Zealand, tanawa have become a sort of coping mechanism for some Maori? It does not literally mean a creature lurking in the water, but can become a way of indicating that Maori are troubled by some incident or event encroaching on their way of life. So in more recent times, the tanawa might not be a literal. Whale monster, shark monster, eel monster, but becomes representative of an attack on traditional Maori lands or ways of life, which I thought was really interesting. Let's travel now to Europe, to Ireland and Scotland, to talk about a mythical creature that is especially near and dear to my heart. And these are the Selkies, or seal folk. Near and dear to my heart because if you know me, you know that I adore seals. I worked with seals in Ireland at a rescue, rehabilitation, and release center specific to seals called Seal Rescue Ireland. I did this a few summers ago and it is the most amazing organization and they are the most incredible animals I know that when I applied for the program to intern with Seal Rescue Ireland, I didn't initially associate Ireland with marine life, with marine mammals, but it is an island, as is Scotland, and that makes for a lot of coastline. So seals not only live in these countries, but do feature fairly prominently in the legends and mythologies of those countries. And this is where the Selkie comes into play. So Selkies, seal folk, are mythological beings capable of changing from seals into humans by shedding their skin, their seal skin, their seal fur. Folk tales involving Selkies revolve around usually A female selkie being coerced into a relationship with a human because a human man has stolen and hidden her seal skin, meaning that she's stuck in her human form, cannot change back into a seal to return to her people below the water in the Atlantic Ocean. So The typical tale is that of a man who steals a female's selkie skin. He finds her naked on the seashore, and somehow compels her to become his wife. But in these stories, the wife will spend her time in captivity, longing for the sea, her one true home, and she will often be depicted gazing longingly at the ocean. She may bear children to her human husband, but once she discovers her skin, she will always immediately return to the sea and even abandon the children she loves. Sometimes it's one of her children who discovers or knows the whereabouts of her skin, and returns it to her. In some children's stories featuring Selkies, the Selkie will revisit her family on land once a year, but in the most traditional version of this folklore, once the Selkie returns to the sea, she's never seen again. At least in human form. Occasionally in these stories, the children will witness a large seal approaching them, and seeming to greet them plaintively from the shore. So male Selkies are described as being handsome in their human form, and similar to the Encandado from episode 6, the river dolphins who transform into attractive Brazilian men, Selkies are said to be very handsome and have great seductive powers over human women. They seek out women who are dissatisfied with their lives, such as the married women waiting for their fishermen husbands. In one popular tale, a certain Ursula of Orkney was rumored to wish to make contact with a male selkie, and in order to do so, she would shed seven tears carefully into the sea. Children born between a man and a selkie, a human man and a selkie, sometimes have webbed hands, And in the case of the aforementioned Ursula, who had children sired by a male selkie, the children had to have the webbing between their fingers and toes, which was made of horny material, clipped away intermittently. And their their descendants were said to carry that trait as well to a certain extent. There are legends that say that selkies turn into humans every so often when the conditions of the tide are correct, but the stories don't agree on the time interval, the amount of time between the Selkie's transformations. Again, coming back to Ursula, her male Selkie promised to visit her on the seventh stream or springtide. In another ballad, the seal has been promised to return in seven years. The number seven is common in these folktales involving magic and superstition. According to one version of the story, the Selkie can only assume human form once every seven years because it is a body housing a condemned soul. So this is the notion that Selkies are either humans who had committed sinful wrongdoings or some sort of fallen angel paying penance for some crime. But due to this legend, people on the Scottish Isles would, when this legend was at its height, only kill seals if absolutely required to make use of their skin and blubber because to kill a seal for no reason would result in misfortune. There was a story of crofters who brought their sheep to graze on the edge of a cliff within the Orkney Islands. During the summer, a man placed seven sheep on the largest cliff, but on his way home, the man killed a seal. That night, all of the man's sheep disappeared. However, the other crofters, who had not killed a seal, found that their sheep were just fine come morning. That same folk teller recounted that the descendants of Selkie human parents possessed a skin throughout the ages that was greenish-white in color and cracked in certain places upon the body, A cracked, dry, scaly skin. And those cracks were said to exude a fishy odor. I like that story of the Selkies. It's like a twisted version of a mermaid or siren. There's a really lovely animated film called Song of the Sea that presents just this absolutely beautifully animated version of the Selkie legend. It was on Netflix a few years ago. I don't know if it is anymore. That was my introduction to the idea of the Selkie. I watched that movie before going to Ireland to work with seals. It's just so delightful with the most beautiful Celtic music. I highly recommend it. Obviously, it's a film that's appropriate for children. It doesn't feature some of the darker aspects of this tale, but it's really worth a watch. I don't know if it's still available on Netflix or Crave or whatever movie video provider you're subscribed to, but it's really worth a watch. Again, it's called Song of the Sea, and it presents this legend in a really haunting and beautiful way. As a lover of seals, I love the idea that maybe some of them are just a little bit more than we think they are. And having lived and worked in Ireland with Seals, I know that they're sometimes not the most popular animal. There are career fishermen who think that they come in and eat the fish, that they are responsible for the, the decline of certain fish stocks. And although it is illegal to kill common and gray seals in Ireland, at least, it does happen that fishermen will go after the seals, thinking that they're affecting their yield from season to season. So I just, I like the idea that at one time it was seen as bad luck to kill a seal. Whereas now their reputation kind of suffers, at least in these fishing communities. They're such wonderful animals and they're not to be blamed for our actions of overfishing. Maybe we should bring back this legend and to kill a seal should mean bad luck. Let's bring it back. I'll leave you now with what is honestly one of the weirdest animal legends, myths, stories of supernatural, supernaturally possessed animals I've read in the 18 weeks of producing this podcast. This one is is super weird, and I love it for its weirdness. And for the record, this is documented in historical records. This is not oral tradition folklore. This encounter with this animal is documented in like courtly records from the 1400s in Europe. I mean like a king's court, not like legal court. And this is the story of the Bishop Fish. You ready for this? The existence of the bishop fish was first documented in 1433, when a specimen was pulled up swimming in the Baltic Sea. The creature was captured and given as a tribute to the king of Poland, and the king was so taken by the fish that he refused to return it to its aquatic environment. Then, and the articles I was reading, they all pointed out that we don't know why this happened. But a group of Catholic bishops were granted an audience with the incarcerated fish. And this might be because the fish was said in its body shape to resemble a bishop wearing sort of a bishop's hat and cape. So the creature itself looked like it was wearing bishop's garb, thus the term, the name bishop fish. So this fish was granted an audience With a group of Catholic bishops. And one article points out that this encounter, records of this encounter, have either been lost, destroyed, or are currently hidden in the Vatican's archives. So who knows? Maybe the Pope knows about the secret of the bishop fish. Just saying. Maybe he knows something. So according to the legend, the fish gestured to the bishops and apparently communicated its desire to be released. And the bishops were so taken by this communication, by this plea from this animal, that they tried to convince the king that the animal should be returned to the sea. And the king acquiesced and allowed the bishops to return the man-fish thing to the ocean. Once released, The grateful creature apparently made the sign of the cross before disappearing into the ocean's depths. Another tale comes from Germany in 1531 when a bishop fish was caught off the German coast, but the creature refused its captors' offers of food and died in just three days. In another story, a bishop fish was caught in the British Atlantic and was described as a peaceful creature that appeared to have the mitre of a bishop. This animal also perished soon after it was caught, and its corpse was returned to the sea. The reports are unclear as to whether the bishop fish has the capacity to speak, or simply had an advanced enough intellect to be able to communicate its desire to be released with the Catholic bishops. It's clear anyway in all of these accounts of this strange fish that it does appear to have a human-like sensitivity to its environment and an ability to communicate in some way with its captors. Some researchers today believe that the bishop fish may have been a kind of deformed manta or stingray. The features might have borne a slight resemblance to those of a man. The ray's wings could create the illusion of the cape-like appendage attributed to these creatures could have been some form of ray or manta ray. Although how that creature was able to communicate with the record takers and bishops in these stories is beyond me. So whether the bishop fish are some kind of anomaly of known marine life or some new species that will continue to haunt cryptozoologists, As recently as the 1990s, a really fascinating fish was caught by Turkish fishermen. It had ruddy pigmentation and vaguely humanoid features that bore a striking similarity to antiquated reports of the bishop fish. What a weird story. What a weird cryptoid. I wonder... Were they really so confused by a manta ray? How was the manta ray talking to them, communicating with them? I heard another article proclaim that it might have been some kind of like nurse or angel shark, again, that had that, or even a squid with that head shaped like the bishop's hat and cape. But how were they so pulled in by this animal's ability to evoke its desire to be put back in the ocean. How are they picking up whatever it was putting down? I'm so curious as to what signal they took to mean. Anyway, I don't even know. It's just too bizarre, but I love this story. I love that there are still in the ocean just greater mysteries than we will ever be able to solve. Forget about aliens. Forget about alien life. The stuff in the ocean is way weirder and way creepier. So on that note, I will conclude this part two of our exploration, our deep dive, if you will, into supernatural sea creatures. I'd like to thank you very much for joining me, as always. You know how to reach me if you'd like to do so. I'm at afraidofthebarkpodcast at gmail.com on Facebook at AYAO Podcast, on Instagram at Afraid of the Bark Podcast, and on Twitter at Afraid of the Bark. Reach out to me. Let me know what you think of the strangeness that is the Bishop Fish and the other legends that we discussed today. Let me know if you're excited for our upcoming holiday episode next week. Let me know what you think of our new publication date, which will be Fridays from this point on. I'm sorry about that unexpected change. It just works a lot better with my schedule. I hope it'll lead to fewer delays in week-to-week publishing, but let me know if you have any thoughts about that. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you like and what you don't like and what you want to see moving forward. Talk to me so that this isn't so one-sided. Just tell me what's on your mind. What do you think of the bishop fish? What do you think it could have been? Do you agree that it could have been an angel shark or a manta ray? What do you think? Tell me what you think. I want to hear from you. Thank you very much for being here. And I will leave you at the end of this episode 17, as I always do, by simply wishing you sweet dreams tonight. Thanks again. (laughs) Ruff, (laughs) Ruff, ruff, ruff,